1 Corinthians chapters 10 through 13, kind of jumping around a little bit in there. But if you don't, that's fine, because we're going to put them up on the screen. And last week, Jay, if you were here, anybody happen to remember what Jay talked about? This is the worst question ever. What was the sermon last week? Yeah, I talked about doing church as a family. And so I'd like to put our title up on the screen up here. And I realize it makes a really nice little acronym. Um, Maybe you need caffeinated church for me, Sunday mornings at 10 a.m., I'm really getting together with people. I'm not like a super caffeinated dude. I do like coffee. Um, but, but I feel like so much of, of church life or things around church get so amped up that I kind of like the idea of a decaf church. Uh, everybody's a little more chill, <laughs> a little more relaxed, and you can kind of be yourself. So if, you're, if you ever are, you know, finding yourself in a situation, somebody's asking you, hey, what do they talk about at church? You can just remember we talked about being decaf. Um, and what that stands for is doing church as a family. Um, <clears throat> and that's a lot different than I will say a lot of us have probably experienced. I am probably abnormal because I grew up not only in church, but I grew up in a church environment that very much was family. The people that I grew up with and around and that we served in church with and that, I mean, I was there all the time, um, they felt like family to me. And so I hear stories and I've, I've been to places that I, I walk in and I'm like, I just can feel this does not feel like family. This feels like something else. I don't know what, what to call it. It doesn't feel like family. Um, and I don't know what has landed you here today. Uh, whether you're, this is your first time or whether you've come a lot, I'm guessing, though, that there is something beyond just the fact that this is a church or just the fact that you like the sermon or whatever that made you stay. Um, and my hope is, and what my, my deepest belief is, is that why we actually want to be in community is because we're wired that way. We are wired for a certain kind of community, and that's what I want to describe. Last week, Jay talked about sort of the theological underpinnings for what it means to be a family. And one of the things he talked about, he talked about how Jesus changed uh, our paradigm for how we're to think about and relate to God. And one of the things he noticed Jesus saying often, and he got in big, big trouble from the religion of his day, is he called God Father. They said that was blasphemous. You can't do that. God is different. God is other. God is better. God is bigger. We're, you know, we're bad. We're sinful. We're dirt. We're all that stuff. And Jesus says, no, no, no. You are misunderstanding the heart of God. You need to think of God as a loving parent. Why is that so critical? Why was that such a big deal for Jesus? I believe that it's because we have to fundamentally answer the deepest question that every human being has to answer, which is, Am I accepted? Am I valuable? Do I belong? Those are three ways of saying the same thing. Am I okay as I am? And if not, then we have a a huge uh, process of dealing with all of the fallout of not being okay being me. But if I am okay, if I am accepted, if I am valued, then I have a huge open door in front of me for the rest of my life. So Jesus, a huge part of his message was trying to answer that one fundamental question that humans all ask, is am I, am I valuable? How many environments, if you just think with me for a second, think about your life, think about the different places you go into and out of, think about um, how many of those places 
require you to ask that question of yourself. Do I belong here? Am I accepted here? Am I valued here? Um, <clears throat> I imagine that if we kept digging and kept asking and kept paying attention, even just over the course of the week, we would probably find a whole lot of places that we go and we find some subterranean current in our spirits that says, like, I don't feel 100% comfortable, 100% safe here. I don't feel 100% accepted. There's this question. I don't want to say the wrong thing. I don't want to act the wrong way. I don't want to look the wrong part. All out of a fear of not being accepted. Um, And that rejection that we have all experienced is like a root And it's a root that causes pain and fear in the rest of our life for the rest of our life. And it literally, this is maybe not the best way to use the term literally because I don't know what literally a soul is. But I will say it literally damages your soul. It tears at the very fabric of what it means to be human. We were never made for that. Uh, My story, I was, you know, I didn't have to think very far. Maybe you wouldn't have to think very far to think of your story for one of those things that happened early on in life that stuck with you. And, and I will tell the story, and as I tell the story, it will sound in my own ears like that's not a big deal. But because I still remember it, and because it had such a lasting impact on me, it is a big deal. And we've all got things like this, so I'll give you mine. So the one that came to mind the first was in eighth grade. And I had these couple friends who um, we had known each other since fifth grade and spent a lot of time together. Um, they were both in my neighborhood, um, and by eighth grade, social relationships get, got pretty dicey. (laughs) It was like a dog-eat-dog social world there, and so I, I should have maybe been more on my guard, but I was in an elective class with these two guys, and we're kind of sitting, sitting towards the back, and we didn't like our teacher. She was not, she was just not very nice, and, and she was really nice to some people and really not nice to other people. In my eighth grade year, um, we were in this class, this elective, and we were joking about, about, you know, how, like, favorites, how she was playing favorites. And then suddenly she started being nice to one of us. And, it, and as we're sitting in the back kind of joking about this, I made a comment that I should not have made. <laughs> the comment I made was, uh, we had recently found out she was pregnant. And so I said, well, maybe she's having mood swings. And I kind of said it as a joke, as if I knew anything about what being pregnant was about at that point. I knew nothing. Um, And we thought that was terribly funny, very witty. (laughs) Um, And that class was in the morning. In the afternoon, I got a call to the vice principal's office. And if you know me, you probably would guess that that didn't happen very often. I, I, I stayed on the straight and narrow as much as possible. So I get called down there. I'm trying to figure out, like, why am I going to the vice principal? <laughs> what is happening here? And I sit down, and it comes to my attention that this had gotten back to her. Um, not just that, but that those two friends that were sitting back with me laughing and joking had later gone and told her that I had said that. Um, and as you can imagine, I was, I was absolutely devastated. Um, and... <clears throat> And in that meeting, I actually got to sit there while she came and berated me <laughs> for saying this. And, I mean, I, I was just, like, I was gone. I did not know what to do. Uh, I went home, decided that I would never go back to that class again. 
I went in the next morning. I transferred out of that elective and into another elective, and I stopped talking to either of those guys, just fully stopped talking to them. Um, I think that generally we will do as much as we possibly can to avoid that feeling. Am I probably right about that? That is a terrible feeling. Um, As I said, I think it it tears something apart within us. Jesus created community to fight against that and to heal that kind of brokenness. And I believe that what the church is supposed to be doing is to say that everyone who wants to belong belongs forever. That there isn't a timeline, there isn't a set of qualifications, there isn't an if after that statement. It is just what it is. Um, And that in the Jesus community, our commitment to unity will drive us not to be perfect, because it's certainly not perfect, but to reconcile and to heal and to right the wrongs that happen and the issues that come up as we live in community. And those are the kind of things that don't happen outside. I have had so few experiences outside of church where people have been willing to have those conversations and to reconcile. It's really a rare thing. And yet in church, in the Jesus community, it is supposed to be the common thing. Unfortunately, as we all know, church actually has caused many of us wounds. It's, it's, it's a place where we've actually experienced some of the deepest wounds of our lives. And sadly, things like gossip or, or stupid disagreements like theology, as if any of us know, <laughs> or failures, just flat-out failures that the, the Christian community couldn't handle, couldn't accept us, couldn't continue to love us, has caused more pain instead of less. Today what I want to talk about is some of, the, some of the things, the gifts that God has given us to be family, to function as family, and to be able to survive the mess of the world that we have been raised in, and not only to survive it, but actually to begin to work with God in healing, and work with God in providing opportunities where people, ourselves included, can come in and experience healing. Is that probably a worthwhile thing to talk about for a few minutes? Um, so I've got three things, and these are all represented in 1 Corinthians uh, chapters 10 through 13. And if you want to read what the Apostle Paul was trying to communicate to these early Christian communities about how to be a family, how to be a community, read 1 Corinthians. It is messed up. It is pretty, pretty crazy, the things he had to say to them. But there are a few nuggets in these chapters that I thought, you know, we could pull these out and we could apply these to ourselves. So the first thing that I want to talk about, you're not going to believe, is communion. I want to talk about communion for for a few minutes. And we're going to use this scripture that references this phrase, that we who are many are one. So, uh, Patrick, go ahead and put up uh, the 1 Corinthians 10, 16 through 17. I'm going to read it for us. Paul says, is not the cup of thanksgiving, you know, when we take communion, we all drink the cup together. Is not that cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a participation in the blood of Christ? And is it not the bread, the bread that we eat, uh, this bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there's just one loaf. So we who are many are one body, for we all share in that one loaf. So the image is pretty simple. There's a piece of bread. Everybody takes a part of it. Everybody eats it. We're all eating the same bread. We're all drinking 
I mean, we don't do this. We don't actually pass around the cup, but you can go to churches where you will literally drink out of the cup that the person next to you drank out of. And that's a strong image, isn't it? Paul says, we who are many then are one. How? Well, it works like this. If I'm communing with Jesus and you over here are communing with Jesus, then we're both communing with Jesus. And if we're both communing with Jesus, then we are also communing with each other. The idea is I can't be one with Jesus and you be one with Jesus and there be issues between you and me. It doesn't work. It doesn't function. So uh, if you look at a little bit later, 1 Corinthians 11, I'm going to read a few verses out of 11, 21 through 22, and then jump forward. It says, so then when you come together, he's criticizing them. He says, it's not the Lord's Supper that you're eating. You're not doing communion just because you get together and eat. For when you're eating, listen to this, some of you go ahead as with your own private suppers. And as a result, one person remains hungry and another gets drunk. And then he goes on to say, don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church by uh, humiliating those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? Certainly not in this matter. So he's trying to describe an attitude that either allows communion to do something miraculous and healing among us, or it becomes this point of division. They actually had a full-on meal, which we're going to do hopefully later this summer. Um, We're going to eat together. And communion is this opportunity to come and prefer one another. He describes letting certain people go first, not showing up, like basically just taking for yourself. And he uses this phrase, examining ourselves. We have to examine ourselves so we don't do it unworthy. What does that sound like to you? As you're approaching communion, what does it mean to examine yourself? I think what he's saying is, I have to address in myself the issues that separate me from you, whoever you may be. Whether I have judgments, unforgiveness, those kinds of things that me wanting to commune with God and and get close to God can't happen outside of me dealing with my heart towards you. Listen to this quote. I love this quote. There is only one thing big enough to bring us all together, and it's the Eucharist, which is another name for communion. It is the blood of Jesus. It's the only thing that can handle all of us even being able to agree and be in relationship and fellowship in the same room. What else could unite us all? Is there anything that we could say that we could all agree on but that one thing? See, to me, it's the one thing that can wrap all of our differences, all of our failures, all of our hurts, all of our issues, and say, because I accept you, says God, you can all accept each other. That is a miraculous thing. So often we approach communion as if this is just a me and God thing where I'm dealing with sort of my forgiveness with God. That's not what communion is. Communion is about stepping into the community. So communion is a gift that Jesus gave us, and we do it regularly to remind ourselves of this. So second, he talks about baptism. Um, I'm not going to have you raise your hand and see how many have been baptized but baptism can be treated very differently depending on the, the group that you're in. So baptism can be used as an exclusive thing. Some denominations say, well, if you're not baptized, you can't do this, you can't do this. I don't think that's what baptism was for. And in 1 Corinthians 12, he talks about baptism. So this is just a few verses later. Just as a body, though it's one, has many parts, but all the parts form one body, so it is with Christ. 
For we were all baptized by one spirit so as to form one body, whether Jews or Gentiles, slave or free. Let's not skip over that for a second. He just included Jews and Gentiles in the same body. And if you know anything about the history of the Jews and the Gentiles, you know that there was a massive division there that the Old Testament put there. He's saying that's gone now. And then he says, oh, slaves or free. Can you imagine living in a society where there are slaves and then there are free people and there's a very clear class divide? We have our own class divides. You can put whatever labels you in there. And he includes all of that, whether slave or free, Jew or Gentile. We are all given the one spirit to drink. Even so, the body is not made up of one part, but of many. Let's keep reading. Now, if the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I don't belong. It would not, for that reason, stop being a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I don't belong to the body. It would not, for that reason, stop being a part of the body. We'll go on. If the whole body were an eye, funny image, where would the sense of hearing be? And if the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? But in fact, God has placed the parts of the body, every one of them, just as he wanted them to be. And if they were all one part, where would the body be? How often do we find ourselves in situations where everybody wants everybody else to conform? We want everybody to talk the same, dress the same, look the same, act the same. And he's saying that's pointless. God did it diversely on purpose. As it is, there are many parts, but one body. I think we have a little more. The eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. And the head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. On the contrary, those parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And the parts that we think are less honorable, we treat with special honor. And the parts that are unpresentable are treated with special modesty while our presentable parts need no special treatment. Now listen, this is so interesting. But God has put the body together, giving greater honor to the parts that lacked it. Greater honor to the parts that lacked honor. So that there should be no divisions in the body, but that its parts should have equal concern for each other. If one part suffers, every part suffers with it. Who's had a sliver recently? If one part suffers, the whole body suffers. I'm sorry. That's just the way we're wired. Um, And if one part is honored, then every part rejoices with it. Did I include any more? Was that it? Okay. I think that's probably far enough for now. So this word, this idea of being baptized, there are actually a couple words that can be translated as baptized. In Greek, there's bapto and there's baptizo. And they're importantly different. And someone discovered this when they were looking at a recipe from back in in the biblical days. Somebody was writing a recipe for pickles. And it said, you need to bapto the cucumber, and then you need to baptize it in the vinegar, or baptizo. And what they realized when they found that was these don't mean the same thing. One means you need to bapto, rinse it off, wash it, get it clean. That's the old kind of baptized. That's John's baptism where you go in for the forgiveness of sins and you come out and you're clean. And then at a certain point in the future, you need to do that again. That's been around for a long time. And then there's baptizo, which is the word he is using. And that means you need to soak, be immersed to the point where you are no longer identifiable as a cucumber. You are now a pickle. The idea being that if you're baptized, you're changed. If you're baptized, you're different. 
If you're baptized into one body, you are a part of that body, period. You, know, you are no longer not a part of the body. You don't even get to decide anymore because you are part of the body. In fact, in the earliest church buildings, and the very first Christian churches that were ever built, after they, started, after they stopped meeting in homes and they started growing in number and they could actually buy a building, guess what the central part of the church sanctuary in the church was? It was the baptismal tank. Everything was built around that because it's like, hey, once you're baptized, you're in, period, for life. The best membership you can ever ask for. You can never get kicked out. So it's full entrance into the community and into the family. And there comes with that a new mentality, and he describes it. What does he say? First, he says, the foot cannot say, I'm not needed. What is that? That is self-disqualification. The new mentality is If you've been baptized, and I'm not just talking physically, but I just mean, I also mean spiritually. If you have accepted your acceptance, then you cannot disqualify yourself. And if the voices inside of your head or or the things that are speaking to you are trying to disqualify you, you will know automatically that they are not from God. Because that's the very point of baptism. What happened when Jesus was baptized? This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased, right? The whole point of baptism is to end that question. And then secondly, he says, the eye cannot say to the hand. In other words, I can't disqualify anybody else just because they're different than me, because they don't look like me, talk like me, think like me. I don't have that permission. And if church is ever going to accomplish its mission in the world as a family and as demonstrating that and offering healing, this is where it begins. The eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. I cannot disqualify anyone else. And I love that he says, instead of should not, not the eye should not say, not the foot should not say, he says, cannot say. It doesn't work. It just doesn't exist. So if someone ever does come and try to disqualify you, you can say, sorry, you don't get to decide. (laughs) That's not their choice. So now what does that enable us to do? Starting with that mentality, he goes on. And at the end of 1 Corinthians 12, and verse 27, he says this. Oh, I didn't realize that background was going to move. That's cute. Um, okay, he says at the end of verse, or chapter 12, he says, So now you're one body. You're the body of Christ, and each one of you is a part of it. And God is placed in the church, and then he describes. He describes apostles, prophets. He says teachers. Workers of miracles, people with gifts of healing, of helping, of guidance, and of different kinds. Oh, go back just a little bit. I want to get the end there. Yep. Is everyone an apostle? Obviously, no. Are everyone prophets? I hope not. Is everybody a teacher? Definitely not. Do everyone work miracles? No. And then he goes on and says, do you all have gifts of healing? Do you all speak in tongues? Do you all interpret? No. Now, eagerly the desire gifts But I'm going to show you what he calls the most excellent way. And this is the third gift that God has given us. It is love expressing itself through each of our unique gifts that he has given us. This is the most excellent way. Assuming there is oneness. Assuming that you and I are all accepted. That we're all in. That if we want to be here, that there's nothing that can disqualify us. Then what? How do we function as a family? Who knows 1 Corinthians 13? It's one of the most famous scriptures in the Bible. Love is patient, it starts. Love is kind. It goes on to describe what love looks like. So, 
he starts off by saying, God has given gifts. Now, the most excellent way is love. How do we love each other using our unique gifts? This is, a, this is an important question, I think, for anyone who says, I'm, I'm a part of a church, I want to be a part of a church, I want to be a part of a community that is seeking God and that is, that is growing in unity and offering itself to the world. This is where we start. But there has been a manipulation that has happened in church that we have to address and adjust. I believe it is wrong to use people and use people's gifts to build any person's ministry. And I think that there are probably a lot of us in the room who have felt used by churches or by ministers, by people who say, oh, you can do this. Great. Come and help me do my thing. And you essentially become a tool. And if you're no longer useful, if you can't do that anymore, if you have to take a break, if you have to step back, or if you have some failure that then is a blemish for that person or that they don't like, you are now on the outside. That is, (laughs) I'll use the word that just came to mind, that is an abomination to what Paul is describing. That is the opposite of what we are supposed to be doing. Instead, what, are we, what we're supposed to do is start with the fact that everybody is in and everybody ex- is accepted. And God has placed each one of us, it says, as he desired for, for his specific reason. Whether I get that reason of why you're here or not <laughs> doesn't matter. Whether you like my preaching style or not has zero relevance on whether or not I should be doing this today. <laughs> What's amazing about this idea is that God is doing something and he has purposes and reasons and we don't know them. But the one guiding factor, the one guiding uh, principle or idea that makes it all work is that if you are being you in order to love somebody else, it's working. If you are authentically being yourself, not trying to be something that you're not to please other people, If you are authentically trying to discover who you are and trying to love people the way that love looks like for you, it's working. For some, that may involve actually serving here at church, like on a Sunday. And you saw our wonderful kids class come in with those great adults who are in there helping them. That is unique to who they are. They're there because they want to be. They're there because they love kids and um, and because that is something that is inside of them. But one of the most important things that I think they would ever know is that if they ever stopped serving in the kids' ministry, they would be no less valuable here, right? And yet that's so often not the message that people hear. Now, my guess, though, is that for many of us, what love is going to look like most of the time is us being us beyond Sundays, right? I mean, you don't start, stop being a part of the body of Christ when you walk out the doors in a few minutes. And the body of Christ doesn't stop functioning just because we're not all in the same place at the same time. Instead, we're all being us out in community. And sometimes we get to be together and we get to put us on display in what love looks like in that context. And sometimes we're all alone in hostile environments and we get to show what love looks like in those environments. But the point is that you are here. You are created by God and you are unique And it's not just the things that you do, but literally who you are that changes the world. And so it takes a lot of courage for us to let that come out in all of its unique and various ways. Have you ever felt like, oh, I want to do that. I I just don't know if I could just let myself be myself. 
in that way. I don't know if they could handle it. I don't know if they would accept me. My hope is that here at Fifth Avenue, we are getting more and more free to express our uniqueness as we seek to love one another. Um, What's interesting about these three things I talked about, communion, baptism, and this idea of expressing our gifts in love, they're all mirrored in family, in your actual earthly family. Um, The blood of communion in your family, the same, it's, it's blood, right? We talk about it's the same blood that unifies all. In baptism, you're one body. Well, in a family, you literally share the same DNA, the same physical characteristics of the, of the people in your family. And thirdly, this idea of expressing gifts, isn't it interesting that we all find our roles in our families? It's like God knew that we needed somebody who was offbeat to throw this, this uh, really square family a little bit of a curveball and get them to get outside of their comfort zone a little bit, so they included you, right? No. But each of us find our spot. Each of us realize that we are gifts to our family because we bring something that didn't exist before. And I want to say to you this morning that you are a gift to this family. Whether or not you do anything here, you are a gift just by being here. And that we can't be us without each of us being ourselves. And we cannot fulfill our mission in the world to function as one body if we don't get to experience that unity here among us. So I love being together. I love that we get to be like this and invite anyone who wants to come and be with us on Sundays. But I also look forward to what's next. And what's next is going to be really fun in the coming months. We'll have more invitations. So I strongly encourage you, take advantage of these opportunities like uh, what Krista was announcing Go ahead. If there's something that's scaring you about meeting some people or getting in a small environment or trying something new, acknowledge it for what it is. It's fear. If that wasn't there, would you just go? Would you have to worry about showing up to something like that? Or these other events or, or, you know, we'll, we'll do more things later this summer. I really strongly encourage you, don't disqualify yourself. To be honest, I'm not really worried about too much about us disqualifying each other. I'm more worried about us disqualifying ourselves. So let's recognize that for what it is, but let's choose to move into family. Would you pray with me? God, we are humbled to know that you would include us in such a noble and amazing calling. Um, You really have invited us into something that is beyond any one of us. It is beyond our comprehension, our understanding, and it's it's even beyond us just to emotionally grasp or to intuit what, what, what does this all mean? And yet we're here And you're calling us to you, you're calling us to one another, and you're calling us to our community. How do we do that together, God? Would you show us, as we we take communion in these coming weeks together, would you show us that we are one? And as we offer opportunities this summer to be baptized, would you remind us, not just those who are being baptized, but also those who are celebrating baptism, that this is a family, that we're all in, that we're all needed. Now, God, as the days go forward, would you show each of us individually and help us to show each other the unique gifts that we all are. Help us to express love in the way that only each of us can express it. Thank you, God, for this amazing community, this church. Thank you for your grace that helps us find our way. In Jesus' name, amen.